Someone mentioned 1 Corinthians 6, so if you want to look at that really quickly, I think it would be helpful for us in this session to be clear. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Like if, if those practices shape our identity and lifestyle, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now most people who look at this come to this passage to debate the right and wrongness of different things listed there. But I think there's another big point to be made here. And that is... The Apostle Paul knew there were people who lived these lifestyles and had been called out. Like he knew their names. Such were some of you. He heard their stories. And this is, again, one of the things that led me into wanting to both explore and, and teach and talk about this in church is because in many of our churches we have these levels of acceptable sin that you can talk about. Like in our church we would have open sharing times and it wasn't unusual for someone to say, hey, I'm addicted to porn, but you pray for me, I need freedom through the gospel. And people just laying hands on them and crying out and then them going through, we have counseling programs that can help address those areas, but or our marriage is falling apart, would you pray for us? Or like, I, I've been overeating, like I'm addicted to food, I, I try to ease my anxiety with food, whatever, whatever it is. But I noticed that no one, this is many years ago, had stood up and shared, I struggle with same-sex attraction. Would you pray for me? No one had ever said anything. Or, I experienced gender dysphoria. I have for many years. Like, wondering, what does it mean to be a man? Or what does it mean to be a woman? Um, because those are areas that you, you just don't talk about. But, but Paul apparently did. Or how did he know that some of them were that. Like somebody's talking. And what would it be like if we could, to use a term that could be misunderstood, demystify these areas? And by demystify, I mean to make a difficult or esoteric subject clearer and easier to understand. Like, esoteric means only a specialized group of people can understand something. And this, this is where I think we, we, we need to fight against that. 
Like people are like, well, I can help people with other issues, but same-sex attraction, eh, can't help people with that. I don't know what that's like. Or gender dysphoria, I, I don't know what that's like. So, so does that mean you have to be an alcoholic to help alcoholics? Does that mean you have to experience wide swings of depression and manic episodes in order to love someone and walk a journey with them? No. Like, so this session, the goal is, how do we create a culture in our churches where sin is not condoned or celebrated, but we are living honestly and open? Because I believe our churches have the resources to love people well who are either still stuck, addicted, struggling, or have come up um, and gotten help. One, one of the places we could go, and I'll try to summarize this quickly, because the, the book of Titus provides a great framework. And, and so what I want to do is, for a couple, just a few minutes, pr provide that framework, and then you're going to have questions, well then, what does that mean? Like, how do we work that out? But if we could at least get some of that framework, and one of the ways we can describe this framework is we need to respond with three things. Fathers, families, friends. Fathers, families, friends. And whether you like those words or not, the point is the church has within it the relational provisions to help people with any struggle. That doesn't mean we have all the answers. It doesn't mean we don't partner with people outside or other organizations. We do all of that. But we have within our churches networks of love and care that can help those of us who struggle. So, a little background on the book of Titus. Paul wrote his letter to the book of Titus. Titus was a pastor ministering on the island of Crete. Crete was known for its parties, its immorality, its pederasty. What's pederasty? Man-boy love, its homosexuality, and every other kind of version of that. Crete was simply an extreme version of what was common in the Roman, Greco-Roman world. And when we demystify this, one of the things we're also doing is we're setting aside our chronological snobbery that churches in the past had it easier. Like, Paul, your, your pastors had it easy. They didn't have to deal with all this stuff. Like, the rainbow was still owned by Christians before it was culturally appropriated and stolen. Um, it was, it was, you have it easy compared to what we have. And it's, it's not, it's not true. Titus most likely wrestled with everything we wrestle with, both personally in his church and culturally. Um, the, 
Well, I wasn't going to go into this, but I do think maybe a statement, and then if you want to push into it a little more in the Q&A, might be helpful. But most of the arguments you will hear online arguing for the fact that the Bible is pro-homosexual lifestyle um, are based on one assumption, and that is the, the most common versions now. And it's funny, because when I wrote that book, it, it wasn't even around, this argument. So I didn't even, I didn't even address it. That was 10 or 12 years, 13 years ago or something, um, when I first wrote it. And then right after that, Matthew Vines came along with a bunch of videos that went online. And then after that, there, there, since then, there's been a flood of books. I've shelves and shelves that basically could be summarized with one argument, and that is this. When the Bible addresses homosexuality in particular, or other versions of that, it, the Bible is addressing the harmful versions of that, not the beautiful versions of that. Like the Bible is addressing pederasty, man-boy love, or male prostitution, like where people are selling themselves, or abusive, coercive, homosexual or lesbian relationships. The Bible didn't know anything about long-term, consensual, loving, homosexual relationships. Have you ever heard that? Yes. Like that, that is the argument. And even many who would claim to be evangelicals are now embracing that as legitimate. And, and they go through the passages of scripture like in Genesis, well, the problem in you know, Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality, it was a lack of hospitality that brought about the judgment, and it was the coercive forced homosexuality. It wasn't that they were head-loving homosexual relationships. Um, Romans 1 is addressing not a loving uh, homosexual living out who he is, but being unnatural. You are naturally one way. If, if you do what is unnatural, then you are not living out honestly with authenticity who you are. And each passage it has gone through like that and written off as that's the Bible didn't know anything about what we know about today. And it's just not true, and I don't have time to go through Greek literature to show you that everything we have today Sometimes with different names, they may not have had a gender bread, gender bed, gender, gender bread person. Um, but everything we have today was in Paul's day. And that, that's really important to understand. So when Paul writes to a pastor like Titus and says, I want to tell you what you do to create a culture where people coming from every different kind of background, can flourish in the gospel. And he told Titus to have three things. Number one, we need fathers who live and defend the gospel. And by fathers, I mean spiritual fathers, elders. Look at verse Titus 1, 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, 
For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So you can see there's such a mix there between humility, not arrogant, verse 7. So that means they're honest about their own failures. And integrity, above reproach, verse 6. They're honest about their own failures, but they're not satisfied in staying in them. So these are leaders who are ordinary followers of Jesus, who face their own weakness, struggles, and have seen the gospel transforming them. And this also means that these are leaders who are in each other's lives to such an extent that these quali qualifications can be evident. We're not just pretending. We know each other. And we're creating a culture of honesty. I'll never forget years ago when after I preached a sermon, there was a lady standing off to the side. And she wanted to make sure she was waiting until everybody else was done talking to me and gone. And she came up, and in tears, she began sharing. She's married, has two kids, but she said, I struggle with same-sex attraction and have for years. And I've never told anyone. And my husband doesn't even know. And so at that point, I'm crying with her, because just imagining what that's like. You're, you're in church. You're a follower of Jesus. You're married. You've got kids. And you have a battle that you have never felt safe, comfortable, willing, whatever, to share with anyone. What, what a, a terrible place to be. And I, I apologized to her right then. I said, please forgive me if we as pastors have not created a church context where you felt you could you, you felt you couldn't come our way. Or that we wouldn't help. And and we cried, prayed. Later that day she talked to her husband. And he just loved on her and said, Yeah, we're gonna walk through this together. Like it's just beautiful. And they're still flourishing. This is many years ago. They're still flourishing in our church. But to create a culture where it's like we can, we can reach out for help and know that there aren't some sins that, oh yeah, I know that sin we can talk about, but not that. That struggle, there's no hope. No. Like if the gospel isn't appropriate and sufficient for that, what is what, what is wrong? And so that that modeling and creating a culture that the fathers of the church, elders in this case, like are creating an atmosphere where we can be open and honest and get help, and then not just not wallow in our sin as if we're condoning it, but look at verse 9 of Titus 1.9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he's not just talking about theology and theory. 
but applied theology, living out that theology, as you can see if you keep reading. Now, I want to share an example. That I, I just love these guys. Um, many of you know, three years ago, the United Methodist Church went through a, a, a massive struggle, and then again, two years, and then more recently, they've been trying to regather, but because of COVID, they've struggled to get everyone together, but one of the groups that have stood firm on a biblical view are the United Methodist pastors from Africa. And one of these heroes, and this is what I believe Titus, uh, Paul is talking about in Titus, is this kind of leader. Dr. Jerry Kula from Liberia addressed a special meeting of the United Methodist Conference in St. Louis, Louis. And he said this, and it, it, it's pretty long, but I think it's important for you to hear that it, what Paul was calling for 2,000 years ago is still needed today, these kinds of leaders. Brothers and sisters of the United Methodist Church from all around the world, I humbly greet you in the strong name of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to share gratefulness for those who are there. He outlines what is at stake in this denominational debate over church's sexual ethics and teachings on marriage and ordination standards. But then he rejects the pressure that is being placed on the African churches to go along with the Western churches. And he affirms this, and see if you can hear it, the truth and love mixed together. All persons are individuals of sacred worth created in the image of God. All persons need the ministry of the church. We affirm that God's grace is available to all. And then he dogmatically stated that the scripture does not condone the practice of homosexuality. While we commit ourselves to be in ministry for and with all persons, we do not celebrate same-sex marriage or ordain for ministry people who self-avow as practicing homosexuals. These practices do not conform to the authentic teaching of the scriptures, our primary authority for faith and Christian living. However, we extend grace to all people because we all know we are sinners in need of God's redeeming. We know how critical and life-changing God's grace has been in our own lives. You notice that's what Titus is talking about. They've experienced grace. They want other people to experience grace. We warmly welcome all people to our churches. We long to be in fellowship with them, to pray with them, to weep with them, and to experience the joy of transformation with them. And then he goes on to give a remarkable warning. We do not need to hear a progressive U.S. bishop lecture us about our need to grow up. We are grounded in God's word and the gracious and clear teachings of our church. On that, we will not yield. We will not take a road that leads us from the truth. We will take the road that leads us leads up to the making of disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Unfortunately, some United Methodists in the U.S. have the faulty assumption that all Africans are concerned about is U.S. financial support. Well, I am sure, being sinners like all of you, some Africans are fixated on money. But with due respect, a fixation on money seems more of an American problem than an African <laughs> We get by on far less than most Americans do. We know how to do it. 
I'm not sure you do. <laughs> so true. So if anyone is so naive or condescending as to think we should sell our birthright in Jesus Christ for American dollars, they simply do not know us. Friends, not too long ago, my country was ravaged by a terrible civil war. And then we faced the outbreak of the Ebola virus. We are keenly familiar with hardship and sorrow, but Jesus has led us through every tribe. So nothing that happens over the next few days will deter us from following him and him alone. We will persevere in the race before us. We will remain steadfast and faithful. And someday, we will wear the victor's crown of glory with our King Jesus. Come, walk with us. Amen. When Paul wrote Titus 1.9, hold firm to the trustworthy word as truth, that's what he's talking about. In 2 Peter 2.19, Peter wrote, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. We can be in the freest nation on the planet and still be slaves. Peter warns, we need fathers who live and defend the gospel. Secondly, we need families who together are trained in gospel living. Notice how familial this is, Titus 2.1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity. So notice the multi-generational discipleship. It's a family of families. Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women learning how to kill lies and be trained in truth and grace. We need this. And when I say we need this, if I had a couple hours, I could just tell lots of stories how remarkable this is. Like one man I'm thinking of, who is your like epitome of what a man's man is, you know, in the South, big truck, <laughs> big attitude, like, um, just huge and abrasive and and for some reason he got partnered in a discipleship relationship with a man in our church who had recently come out of the gay lifestyle and so they were working out together and the guy the, the guy who had come out of the gay lifestyle said to the, the guy, other guy like, sometimes I think, apart from Jesus, you would just punch me in the face. <laughs> and he said, no question. <laughs> no question. Like, that would have happened. Um, but fast forward over the next couple of years, and what, what was so beautiful is, so you have one man that 
that really needs to learn more of what it means to be a man. And you have another man who really needs to learn more of what it means to be a man. They're just coming from opposite sides. And if you met the big guy with the big truck, like, I don't even know if you would recognize him. His, his marriage has been rescued, his wife had left, and they're now restored. He's much more gentle. It, it, he will, when we start talking about things of the Lord, he'll just break into tears. And, and now the guy who came out of gay lifestyle is married, has kids, is following Jesus, is one of our life leaders. Like, so that's just one example of the way in normal community, Let's just walk through this road. Let's learn together what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and experience his grace and to learn more of what that looks like as a man, as a woman. Um, I think I shared with these guys last night a story where a, a lady had come out of a lifestyle of lesbianism and the first time she came to church, she said, I don't have a clue what you people are talking about. <laughs> Like she had just trusted Christ, but had never sat under expository preaching. I had no idea what we were doing. <clears throat> so another lady in our church said, how about every Sunday we go out to eat? We're going to go out to lunch after church, and we're going to talk about the message. And so every Sunday they would sit in church, just worship, hear the message. They would go out to eat, and talk through it. And this lady grew in her walk with the Lord. Like it's that kind of, when I say family, it's not always the nu nuclear family. Like the nuclear family is part of that, but it's drawing people into our families and living as a family. Let's walk through this. And the, and the lady who took the, her friend to lunch each Sunday, she, she didn't know anything about that particular struggle. But she said, let's learn together. Let's grow together. That, that is a beautiful thing. And I really believe that is what Paul is talking about here. Men modeling what it means to be a man. Women modeling what it means to be a woman. Look at verse 11, Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, with training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That doesn't happen automatically. You don't run a marathon just because you think you want to run a marathon. You train. Funny story about that. Um, a, a man from Kenya lived with us and um, became part of our family many, many, many years. And my, a couple of my boys were runners, and so he decided he wanted to run, but he was in pre-med. Uh, the man from Kenya was uh, a pre-med student. He's now a doctor. He, but, but he thought, since he's from Africa, <laughs> we run. <laughs> but I said, you've been in America too long, brother. <laughs> so it was hilarious, because he didn't train at all. He just went and ran. And he did really well, and we couldn't find him. And he was under a tree throwing up. <laughs> it's like, you've got to train. 
you, you don't, no matter who you are, yes, he's an amazing athlete. But you, you, you've got to train. That's what he's saying. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he's talking about grace-filled, gospel living. And in order for us to do this, we, we have to demystify homosexuality. In other words, let, let me quote, I, I don't know if this is in your notes, Gregory Coles, is there a Gregory Coles quote? Okay, let me qualify, because Coles would call himself a gay Christian, and if in the Q&A you wanna, like I mentioned, to dive into that debate, I would love to, but I don't agree with him on that, but what he says here is really helpful. He says, it was true that being asked to, and by the way, he calls himself a gay Christian, but he doesn't live, live out that behavior, but he's lived, living in purity. <coughs> it was true that being asked to ignore something so central to my identity seemed at times like an impossible request. It was true that I had despaired, considered giving up on God, wanted to die, but none of that meant that the traditional interpretation of the Bible was wrong. Obedience is supposed to be costly, but in the Western world, lulled by freedom of religion and unprecedented opulence, we so easily lose sight of what words like suffering really mean. Maybe the problem isn't that gay Christians have received an impossible task. Maybe the problem is that so many straight Christians have given themselves a task that is too easy, a cross that's too bearable. While gay Christians are expected to deny themselves in their desires for sex and family and intimacy, desires that feel so intrinsically part of their being, most straight Christians can simply channel those desires toward a single woman or man, get married and have kids, join a country club, attend a welcoming church where everything has been designed with people like them in mind, and chase the Jesus festooned brand of the American dream, Jesus decorated brand of the American dream. Maybe the problem, big point here, maybe the problem isn't that faith costs some of us too much, but that it costs all of us too little. We are together in this, and it's a beautiful thing when the body realizes that. Young man, many years ago, confessed that he was struggling with same-sex attraction, but he was a student at a, a, a college nearby <clears throat> at Clemson. And I had said to him, I think you should tell your roommates. And he said, what? Tell my roommates at Clemson that I struggle with same-sex attraction. And I said, well, they're believers, aren't they? Yeah. So he prayed about it, and he said, I'm going to do it. And he told his roommates, and they all said, we're in this together. We are struggling for purity. You're struggling for purity. Even though our temptations are different, we're going to walk through this together. And he's still following Jesus many years later. <clears throat> but when, brothers and sisters, 
walk through it together makes a huge difference. Finally, and this, that's leading into this final point, we need friends who know what it's like to be set free. Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So how do you show perfect courtesy toward people who are being very uncourteous to you at work, at school, with requirements? This is how. Never forget where you came from. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hated, hating one another. Now, think about what he just said. It is so holistic. Uh, we were foolish, disobedient, verse 3, that means we were villains actively choosing wrongly. We were also led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were victims. Slaves are victims. And so Paul has no problem looking at a human, another person and saying, yeah, they're, they're a villain. They make wrong choices. They're foolish. And they're a victim. They've been swept along, <clears throat> along by powerful forces, slaves, <coughs> to various passions and pleasures. But verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us. And you know, when you've experienced that, that changes everything. That, that changes everything. So what time are we supposed to be done now? now? Okay, why don't we start with the Rachel Gilson thing for the Q&A. Um, one quick story. Um, I was talking about this with the church years ago and I was so blessed by an 80-year-old lady who came up in tears. And she said, you know, my heart has been so cold and hard toward people. But when you were speaking, I realized I battle anxiety and fear. I get swept along with that. How can I then look at someone else who is being swept along and battling and despise that? Like, we're in this together. And that's what Paul's talking about. When you've experienced grace and God's forgiven forgiveness, you want everyone else, and you're willing to walk with them as God has been patient.